it's good to see all of you here this morning at Grace. And uh, like Steve mentioned, if you happen to be catching us on live stream, we are super excited that you're able to be with us too. So no matter how you're connecting, uh, welcome to the third week in a sermon series that we've been working through that's called God Is. And, uh, and so if you are a guest or you're just jumping in for the first time, or if you missed the past couple of weeks, uh, welcome to the conversation that we've been having. Uh, but I will just say, you, like I said, this is the third week in this sermon series. And so if you happen to miss the past couple of weeks, I actually just want to take a moment and encourage you, if you would, to, after today's talk, go back, uh, listen to, watch that, the previous messages in the series. You can do that on our website, our app, our podcast. You can access all of that. And the reason I say that is because this series, in a lot of ways, is kind of like one big conversation, and each week sort of builds on each other. And so uh, I think that if you go back and listen to the previous weeks, that will not only help you make sense of uh, the series, but it'll also actually help you make a lot more sense of today's talk. So they all kind of work together. But if you are just joining or you missed the past couple of weeks, let me just summarize for you what we've been talking about in this series So basically, what we're inviting you to think about, inviting all of us to think about together uh, in this series is the way that we perceive God. And so that's really what we're talking about, is how do you understand, how do you view, and what is your, what is our perception of who God is? And I know that probably doesn't sound like a big surprise to you, right? Like, we're a church, so you would kind of expect that we would be talking about God and how we understand God. That doesn't seem super surprising, But what we've been saying in this series is we've been saying that the way that we view God or don't view God, uh, I don't know where you are in your your faith journey, but how you view or don't view God, we said is actually maybe more far-reaching in its implications than you and I might first imagine. And uh, in fact, we've been looking at this quote every week from a very famous uh, uh, Bible scholar, his name is A.W. Tozer, and this is what he said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so we said, wow, that's a big statement. And so a couple weeks ago, we actually started thinking about that. And we said, is A.W. Tozer right? Is that right? That, that one of the most important things, or maybe even the most important thing about us, is how we view and how we perceive God. And we said, you know, when you think about it, there's actually a lot of truth in what he's saying. Uh, because how we view or how we don't view God not only impacts like, how we understand God, but it also consequently is going to impact how we understand ourselves, how we view ourselves. It's going to impact how we translate the circumstances that are happening in our world and around us. It's going to impact the way that we relate to other people and the way we treat other people. And so we said in a lot of ways, that's very true, that how we perceive God is going to have a massive impact on how we interact in this life. And so we started asking a, a, the, the very logical second follow-up question to that. We said, okay, if it's true, if, this is, if A.W. Tozer is true, or at least in part true, that one of the most important things or maybe the most important thing about us is how we view God, we said, well, the second question is this, how do we know that we're getting God right? How do we know that our perception of God is correct? How do we know if it's flawed? Uh, where do we go to help get an accurate picture of who God is and what he's like. And basically, all that conversation over the past couple of weeks has led us to looking at what we said is maybe one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. And so what we're doing in this series is we are looking at, really, the whole series is based off of two verses 
that we said maybe are two of the most important verses in the entire Bible. And the passage that we're looking at is in Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven. And so I just wanna encourage you, if you would, if you got a Bible, uh, I wanna invite you to join me and return with me to this passage. Like I said, the whole series is built out of these two verses and each week we're kind of coming back to these. But Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven, if you are in the room, and you don't have a Bible, uh, you can feel free to grab one under the chair and page 62 is where you're gonna find uh, Exodus 34. And of course, if you don't own a Bible, you can have one. We would love for you to have a physical copy of the Bible you can call your own. So Exodus 34. Now, again, just to refresh everyone on what we've been talking about, we said that this passage right here uh, is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. So he said one of the reasons this passage is so important is because the Bible is a lot of times going to quote itself. Uh, Biblical authors will oftentimes reference each other. And we said that the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible is these two verses right here, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And we said that the reason that they're probably the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Bible is because what this passage contains is it contains the first place, the first place and maybe the only place in all of Scripture where God audibly says, this is who I am, and this is what I'm like. And so in two verses, this is like God's disclosure of himself. And he's saying, this is my name, and this is my character. This is who I am, and this is what I'm like. And so we said, we actually said this, we said this passage is so important that I actually challenged everyone. I said, if you're you're willing to, I triple dog dare you to memorize these two verses throughout this series. And I'm just curious, I don't know, did did any of you actually take me up on that challenge? Is anyone trying to memorize? Okay, yeah, I see some of you guys. Awesome, I'm still trying myself. I'm not quite there yet. I'm working on it, but it's not too late. If you wanna jump in, we still have like four weeks left in this series. So two verses, I know you can do it. And so here's another thing that we're doing. Every week, we're not just uh, talking about this passage, we're also saying it out loud together. Now, I promise you, if you're a guest, we don't do this every week. We just, it's just kind of a rare thing for us. But because we said it's so important, we said, hey, why don't we just like say it out loud together each week? So I thought maybe we'd just do that again here this morning. You guys good with that? Can we try saying it out loud if you're willing to? All right, here we go. Exodus 34, we'll read this together, starting off in verse six. Here's what it says. All right, here we go. The Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. And there you have it. And we said, there it is. There is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. This is the first time that God audibly declares, this is who I am and this is what I'm like. This is my name. And he says, and here's what we said. We said that this, I even know for some of us, when we look at these two verses, as simple as they are, for some of us, all kinds of questions start coming to our mind. Maybe even for some of us, all kinds of concerns start coming into our mind. And we're like, well, I don't, what about this part? And I don't, and so because of that, we said, it's so important that we understand what God says about himself, that each week, we're kind of taking it phrase by phrase. And so uh, last week, if you were here, I spent the whole time talking about where God starts. And God starts by saying, the Lord, the Lord. And last week we said, that's real easy to read past and not think twice about. But we said that that is a big mistake because when God calls himself the Lord, we said that is deeply, deeply significant. And so you wanna go back last week and check that out. This week we're gonna zoom in 
we're going to talk about this idea, the first characteristic that God says about himself, as he reveals himself, he says this, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and the compassionate God. And so I want to think about that today. What does it mean when God says, the first characteristic that he says about himself, is he says that he is gracious and he is compassionate. All right, that's what we're going to talk and we're going to think about. Now, what's interesting is when you look at what God says about himself, gracious and compassionate, it actually comes from two Hebrew words. So the Old Testament is actually written in the Hebrew language, and there's these two Hebrew words that are used, compassion and grace. And I believe that when you look at these words, these two Hebrew words, and you look at how they're used throughout the Bible, it actually sheds a whole lot of light on what it means when God says he's gracious and compassionate. So I want to think about that for a minute. So what are the two words? All right, well, here they are. In the, Greek, or in the Hebrew language, the two words, uh, compassionate and gracious, they actually rhyme, and it's the word rachum, rachum, and chanun. So it's rachum and chanun, and they actually, like I said, they rhyme. And I know you want to try it, don't you? So uh, why don't you say, you got to get the throat in there, all right? So make sure. So let's say rachum. Say rachum. Rachum. And I want you to say chanun. Chanun, right. Okay, great. Good job. I don't actually know if I'm saying those right. Um, but, uh, but here's what I know. Here's what I know. I know they rhyme in the Hebrew language, and I know that oftentimes, in fact, most of the time, they go together. Um, it's actually what's called a Hebrew word pairing, and the idea is these words will appear together often in the Scripture, and they, they're considered mutually explanatory. They help explain one another. They help clarify each other, and they often come together. So what does it mean when God says that he is rachum and he is hanun? Well, again, I think when you start to look into the Bible and you see how these words are used, man, it brings a whole lot of clarity to the whole thing. So let's start with the first one. God says that he is compassionate, that he is rachum, is the word that he uses. Now, I just want to give you a fair warning on this. Um, When I was personally preparing for this message and studying over the past few weeks, this particular aspect and this word, rachum, and also hanun, but specifically rachum, I just got to tell you, I was surprised Uh, This actually has really, in a lot of ways, challenged my own perception of God. And, you know, I'm I'm a person who's went to Bible school and I went to seminary and, you know, all the Bible stuff. And this has been been challenging my perception and my understanding of God. And so I just want to warn you, and I guess warn is not the right right word. I want want to kind of preface that by saying that for some of you, I'm just going to tell you that maybe today as we talk about this, this might actually challenge your perception of God. It might. And, um, and I actually want you to know, I think that's okay. I actually think that's okay. You know, at the beginning of the series, what we said is, we said we want to let God speak for himself. And so we don't, we don't want to come into this series with some kind of prefabricated notion of who we believe God is. We want to come in and we want to say, God, tell us who you are, who you are. And so let me just say that at any point today or in the next coming weeks, because I'm anticipating this is going to happen, If you feel challenged in your perception of God, or if you feel uneasy at certain points, or if you even feel defensive at some points, I just actually want to invite you to consider that that might be all right. That might be okay. Because maybe that means we're actually dealing with something real. And maybe that is revealing an area for us where there's room for us to grow in our understanding of God. And maybe it's even revealing some misconceptions that we have about God. All right, so rahum. It's been challenging me. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, okay, well, what could possibly be challenging about the fact that God is compassionate and gracious? I think for most of us, we would think there's nothing controversial about that. 
that God is, God is compassionate and gracious. I think, for the, I think for the most part, all of us in this room would say, we've heard that before, right? We've heard that God is gracious. We've heard that God is compassionate. And I think, I think quite honestly, for many of us, when we first read these words, compassionate and gracious, what we, how we tend to initially kind of think of them is we think that maybe God is saying that he's nice. Like this is God saying like, I'm a good guy, right? That's kind of what he's saying. So for, for some of us, the picture that comes to our mind when we look at these words is we might think of like Mr. Rogers, right? And you're like, right, Mr. Rogers, he's, he's a nice guy, right? He's gracious and compassionate. He's friendly, right? He's got a gentle disposition. Like who, who doesn't like Mr. Rogers? And so for some of us, when we hear that God is gracious and compassionate, that might be how, how we think of that. But what I wanna show you is that when God says that he is Rahum and he is Hanun, He's actually saying something a lot deeper and a lot more profound than that. So what's the word mean? Okay, so the word rachum, this is crazy. The word rachum comes from the root word in the Hebrew language, which is the word rachim, rachim. And the word rachim literally means, so get this, literally means womb. It means womb. So the word rachim is the Hebrew word that, that talks of a, of a mother's womb. That's the idea. And so the word rahum sounds like rahim. And so if you could make it kind of like, if you could like anglicize it, it might be like saying this. It might be saying like woomy. Like God is, is womish. That's kind of the same idea. And you're like, what in the world does that, is that saying that God, are you saying that God has a womb? Like, is that what that's talking about? Well, no, the word is translated compassion but I think you get the idea. It carries with it, it is a deeply visceral word, right? It is a word that is loaded with feeling. It's loaded with emotion. In fact, my guess is, even for some of you, when you hear that, you can already feel it, can't you? That this is, this is communicating something, and it's, it's, this, it's this deep, emotional, guttural, um, like loaded with emotional kind of, kind of word as you, as you hear. And I believe that what it's trying to do, what this word is doing, it's, it's inviting us in a lot of ways to think of a mother's tender feelings for her vulnerable child. It's kind of the idea when you read this word. In fact, I think to add more clarity, when you look at other places in the Bible where this word is used, you're going to see that that same idea carries through. So I'll just give you a couple examples. Here's one example. 1 Kings chapter three, you don't need to turn in your Bibles there. I'll put the verses on the screen. But in 1 Kings three, you see kind of this, this weird story. Uh, in fact, if you're a person who um, grew up in the church or you grew up around the Bible, uh, my guess is you're gonna be somewhat familiar with this story because it's kind of famous. But let me just kind of tell you, if you're someone who, um, who maybe is not like a Bible person or not familiar with the Bible, I'm just gonna tell you, this story is a little weird. But basically, here's what happens. Uh, the Bible's gonna tell us that there's these two, there's these two women and they both have these newborn babies. And one of, the, one of the women loses her baby. And out of an act of desperation, she steals this other woman's newborn baby, right? So kind of a bad situation. So there's this big debate over who, who is the true mother of this baby. And so the case eventually goes to King Solomon. So King Solomon is known to be the wisest king in all of Israel. And so look at what Solomon does. Okay, so here it is. So it says, then the king, Solomon, said... Bring me a sword. And so they brought a sword for the king, and then he gave an order, and he said, now this is kind of morbid, he said, cut the living child in two and give half of the child to one mother and half to the other child. 
It seems like a really weird thing, but you'll see where this is going here in a second. So verse 26, the woman whose son was alive, now here's the key, was deeply moved. Was deeply moved. That's the word rahum. It's the word rahum. So in other words, when she saw that her child was in a vulnerable place, when she saw that her child was in, in need of being saved, she felt compassion. She felt wumi. It's kind of the, the idea there. And she felt deeply moved out of love for her son. And she said to the king, please, my Lord, give the, give the other woman the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other woman said, neither I nor you should have him cut him in two. And so King Solomon said, then the king gave his ruling, give the living baby to the first woman. Don't kill him because she is the mother. So you see the way that Solomon was able to identify who the true mother was, was by the one who felt compassion. The one who felt, who felt this word rahum for for her son. She saw her son in a vulnerable place. She saw her son in a place where he needed to be saved, and she was moved in compassion and acted in this way. Right? That's the idea. Now, what's interesting is this same word is actually used uh, to describe God in some passages. So I'll give you just another example. This is in Isaiah chapter 49. This is what God says about himself. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have, now here's the word again, she should have no rahum, no rahum, on the son of her rahim, it's a related word, though she may forget, I will not forget you. So what's amazing here is you actually see the compassion and the love of God being compared to that of a nursing mother. And like I said, I know for some of us, this is totally different than maybe we've ever thought about God. You know, we, when you read through scripture, you're gonna see the Bible's gonna say that God has the love of a father, uh, God is a fatherly type of, 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 of care and concern for his people. But the Bible's also going to tell us that God has rahum, that he contains this kind of love for his people. And what's really interesting is that this kind of concept that you see doesn't just show up in the Old Testament. You're actually gonna find it carry over into the New Testament. So did you know that Jesus Christ himself, Jesus at one point describes his compassion and his love as that of uh, kind of this, this maternal kind of care. Uh, I'll just show you the passage I'm thinking of. This is in Matthew 23. Jesus looks at the people of Jerusalem and he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather your children together as a hen, as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So you see what Jesus says here? He says, he says I, I, feel, I feel towards you like a mother hen who wants to gather, who wants to bring you in, who wants to take you into, what is he talking about here? Well, I, think this is the, I think this has echoes of the same idea of being under her wings. It's the same idea as being rahum, showing rahum. And I just tell you guys, as I was studying this uh, over the past couple of weeks, and I was looking at how the Bible uses this word, um, there was one picture, one picture that kept coming to my mind over and over and over again. And uh, I'll just be really honest with you. Um, I've been really hesitant, and I really debated whether or not I should share this with you. And I think you'll understand here in a minute why that's the case. But, um, but I just tell you, as I was studying this idea of Rahum, there's just this one image that just kept coming to my mind over and over again. And uh, to, before I show it to you, I, I got to tell you a little bit of the backstory behind the story. So some of you might know there's a, a family who's been part of our church for the past couple of years here, and uh, they're called the Finks. I don't know if you guys would know them. So Jimmy and Hillary, and their two little girls, Lily and Ella. 
And they've been part of our church for the past couple of years. And even if you don't know them personally, my guess is that you probably know something about them because their story has been such a focal point within our community. And uh, basically, uh, about a year ago, in fact, it was almost exactly a year ago, um, that uh, little Ella, four-year-old little Ella, uh, went to the doctor and she was diagnosed with what's called DIPG. And it's a very, uh, very rare kind of brain tumor. And... um, a lot of you guys maybe watched this story. Some of you know it. If you saw it on Facebook, maybe you've, you've seen the highs and the lows throughout this past year and what their family has been kind of journeying through. A lot of you guys have been part of that journey with them. And um, this past month, just this past month, uh, um, Ella went, went home to be with Jesus. And so uh, little four-year-old Ella went home to be with, with, with her Lord and so last week, we were able to um, have the celebration of life service here at the church. And so we know the Finks, and they're friends of ours. And um, as I was studying, and I was looking at this idea of God's, God's tender love and compassion, how, God, how God's desire is that he wants to, to run to his vulnerable child in need and embrace them, I just, I just said, man, this picture keeps coming to my mind. And the picture that was coming to my mind, uh, and of course I asked for permission, was, was this one, um, this one right here. And um, some, of you, some of you guys know, um, this was the picture that um, Hillary, who's Ella's mom, uh, posted the morning that Ella passed away. And man, she's just, she's just holding her little girl. And man, as I was studying this passage, I just kept thinking of this picture. I just kept thinking of this picture. And I know this is a, it's a, this is a kind of picture you don't see. Like, this is a picture you feel all the way in your gut, all the way in. And I know that this picture is emotional. I also know it's complicated. There's all kinds of emotions and questions and all kinds of things that come up when we see something like this. That's why I debated on whether or not to show you this picture. I actually debated so much. I actually called Hillary this week, and um, I asked her. I said, you know, I said I was studying. The Bible talks about this idea of whom, and I told told her what the word meant, and and I said, and Hillary, I said, as I was reading this, the picture that just kept coming to my mind was this picture of you holding little Ella, and I just said, I, I don't at all want to be insensitive. I said, but would you and Jimmy be okay if I if I showed that picture? And she said to me, she said, we would we would love it, we would love it if you showed that picture. In fact, I'll tell you, one of the most wild things is when we were preparing for celebration of life service. Um, I asked them, I asked Jimmy and Hillary, I said, I said, man, you guys are going through one of the hardest things anyone could ever imagine on planet Earth. I said, how in the world are you doing it? How are, how are you getting through this? And what they said was this. They said that over this past year, the one thing that has become so certain to them is the love that God has for them. And I was just blown away by that. I was just blown away. In fact, Hillary told me, I thought this was, you know what her shirt says? She said, do you know what my shirt says in that picture? I said, well, I, I know it says love. She says, yeah, it says, love me some Jesus. That's what my shirt says. And, and, and listen, here's the thing. 
This is a moving picture for a lot of different reasons, but can I, can I tell you one of the reasons why I think this picture kept coming into my mind? I think there's something about this picture that contains within it the fingerprints of the divine. I think that this picture communicates something to us about God's compassion and his care for us. When, when I look at this mother holding her child, the Bible says this is the idea of rahum. And I just wanna say that if for some of us, we have no category in our perception of God to contain something like that. And I could just tell you for me, that's been very challenging for me because I don't know if I have a category in my mind to contain something like that. It's been challenging. And I just wanna say, if that's opening up new corridors in your thinking of how you perceive God, I think I just encourage you to let that sit for a minute. And because maybe God is trying to tell us something about who he is, that he's full of compassion. And I think that also helps us understand the second thing that God says. He says that he is full of rahum, but then he also says that he is compassionate and he's gracious, which is the word chanun. What does that word mean? Well, like I said, they're related to each other. They're connected. And so you have rahum, which means womb, and then chanun is oftentimes translated favor. So I don't know if this is a helpful way to think of this, but gracious essentially carries with it the connotation of helping someone when they're in a place of need. That's the idea. And so maybe a good way to think about it is like this. Grace is what happens after compassion. God feels compassion, and then he's moved to acts of grace. And you're gonna see this consistently throughout the Bible. So let me just give you a few examples of what I mean. One passage we started looking at last week was in Exodus chapter three. And I want you to notice what happens. Here's what God says. The Lord said, I have, now notice this, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out and I'm concerned about their suffering. So what's he saying there? I think what he's saying is, I have compassion. I see, and I hear, and I feel, and I see the suffering of my people, and I'm concerned about that. So what does he do about it? Well, the Bible says, he says, so now I am coming down to rescue. Okay, so this is the idea of compassion, right? He has moved with, with Rahum, and then it leads to his acts of rescue, his acts of grace. That's the same idea. And I'll tell you what's amazing is when you look through the Bible, what you're gonna see is that every single time God's people cry out to him, every time people cry out to God, God answers them with compassion and with grace. I think maybe one of the best examples of this that I've seen in all of the Bible is actually in Nehemiah chapter nine. And so uh, I'll just kind of briefly tell you what's going on here. In the book of Nehemiah, this guy Nehemiah was a prophet. And the Bible tells us that Israel had turned away from God. They were sinning against God. They had rebelled against God. Basically, they said, we're gonna live life our own way. And as a result of that, God gave them over to their consequences, uh, the consequences of their decisions, and they were in captivity. And so now, God's people were in a really bad spot. And so Nehemiah starts crying out to God in prayer on behalf of his people. And I want you to notice what he prays. I think it's so, he does it so well. He starts to recount the story of God's people. So, so look what he says, Nehemiah chapter nine, verse 17. He says, the Israelites refused to listen and they failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. Now notice what Nehemiah says. So basically he says, your people rebelled against you. They turned their back on you and they, they just went their own way. He says, but God, I know that you are a forgiving God. You are gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger and you are abounding in love. Now, do you guys notice, what's he quoting from here? What's he quoting from? It's Exodus 34, 6, the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible, 
right? And so he says, God, people were rebelling against you, but I know this about you. You're gracious and you're compassionate. And so he says, so you didn't desert them. Now, notice what he says next. He says, but they, the Israelites, were disobedient and they rebelled against you and they put your law behind their backs and they killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you and they committed awful blasphemy. So again, he says, and again, you showed compassion and grace, but your people turned their back against you and they rebelled. <laughs> Look what he says. He says, so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. So he says, so God, you, you let them experience the consequence of their decisions when they turned against you and you handed them over to the consequences of their decisions. And he says, now they were in a bad spot. They were oppressed. Now notice this. And then they cried out to you. They cried out to you. And from heaven, you heard them. And in your, now here it is again, in your great compassion, you show compassion, you gave them deliverers and you rescued them from the hand of their enemies. So you see what he says? God's people rebelled the moment they cried out. The moment they cried out, God was compassionate and he was gracious to them. And then he goes on, he says this. He says, but as soon as they were at rest, they did again what was evil in your sight. And so you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, he says, you heard from heaven and in your compassion, there it is again, you delivered them. And this happened time after time. And if you guys have ever read the Old Testament, you know this is exactly how it goes. God is gracious, God is compassionate, he reaches out, he wants a relationship. God's people stiff arm him, they turn away from him, they don't embrace him, they decide to go their own way. They experience the consequences of those decisions, they find themselves in a desperate spot, they turn to God, they cry out, and the moment they cry out, God meets them with compassion and grace. And, he, and this happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again. And I just want you to know that this happens over and over and again through the Bible. I told you that Exodus 34, 6, and 7 are the mo- is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. But I thought it was so interesting is if you look at some of the places, by and large, the mo- most of the time when the authors of the Bible are quoting this passage, so here would just be an example, and this is just so you can read this on your own if you want to. These are other places where this verse is quoted. What you're going to find is most of the time, most of the time, what the biblical authors are doing is they are pointing back to Exodus 34, 6, and they're pointing back specifically to God's compassion and grace. So most of the time, biblical authors are saying, guys, if you cry out to God, if you, if you, if you turn to him, he is going to be compassionate and he's going to be gracious because he's always like that. And most of the time, when biblical authors are quoting from that passage, that's what they're pointing to. They're pointing over to this. All right, so... Whom and Hanun, God is compassionate and God is gracious. So what are the implications of something like this? What are the implications? Well, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of implications, but just for our sake, I'll mention three and then we'll be done. All right, so three implications. God is gracious and compassionate. What does that mean? Well, here's the first one. I think what this means is when we cry out to God, he will show compassion and grace. Every single time. See, I, I believe that this is a characteristic of God that we can know and we can depend on. And the reason that we can know this and we can depend on this is because God has revealed this to us. God has said, this is who I am and this is what I'm like. And, this, and God is saying, I am the Lord, which in one way means I'm not changing. And what doesn't change? This doesn't change. 
that whenever we turn to God and we cry out to him, we will be met with compassion and grace. I think what this is saying is that God's face is always towards us. It's always towards us. Now, we might not always be facing him. Sometimes we're running around all kinds of different directions. And I believe, I believe that God will allow us to experience the consequences of those decisions. But what the Bible does say is every single time, every time we turn back to him, we are going to be met with compassion and with grace. Like, like a mother who's inclined to hear the cries of her child and to respond, I think the Bible says that that's true about God as well. I thought this was kind of cool. This probably doesn't surprise any of you. It doesn't, didn't surprise me. I was reading this article this past week, and it was talking about the neurological changes that happen in the mind of a mother after she gives birth. And it probably doesn't surprise you. It didn't surprise me. There is some crazy stuff that happens in the mind. I shouldn't say that. I should say there's some incredible, beautiful, um, praiseworthy things. Just don't, don't throw anything at me. That happen in the mind of a mother. Um, so this is kind of cool. Check this out. It says, neurology has depicted that there are significant changes in a mother's brain that happen in response to a baby's cry. It goes on. It says, the sound of the cry of her infant activates the parts in her brain. This is crazy. That prompt her to move and to speak and to process sounds and to be a caregiver, essentially for, to help her do all the things necessary to take care of an infant. You see what that says? See, I think this is such a beautiful thing. God is so hardwired in the mind of a mother who is created in in his image. He is so hardwired in her brain that when she hears the cry of her baby, her natural response is that it moves her into action. It moves her to do what's necessary to help her child who is in a vulnerable spot. See, and I believe that there is something within that that has the fingerprints of God imprinted on it. That's what God is like. He hears the cries of his people and he responds in those ways. I tell you, when I was reading this, I thought to myself, that is so true. I have witnessed this. So my wife and I, we have uh, four kids, um, which means that over the course of our life, we've had four infants, which means that we're done having kids. And, um, but I remember, I remember this with each of the babies. We, you know, we'd have the newborn and you guys know how exhausting that is if you've ever been in that, that season. And I remember we'd put the baby down and we'd go to bed and, you know, you're so exhausted. And so within seconds, you know, we'd be asleep. And then I remember I'd wake up and the sun would be shining. And, I, and I'd, I'd look at my wife and I'd say, well, look at that. The baby slept all night. And I, I know now. But, and, she, and she would just be scowling at me with her eye twitching. And of course, I'd find out that he or she had been up 10 times that night because every time the baby cried, she was moved to action. Meanwhile, I slept there like a big dumb rock who can't really do anything. And I'm just saying, I think there's, I think there's, I think there's something imprinted in the mind of a mother that actually instructs us and tells us something about God. You guys, you, you know, we can, we can depend on this about God that he says, he's telling us, this is who I am and this is what I'm like. And I think for some of us, we need to let that instruct our perception of who he is. You know, for some of us, I think honestly, what, how we think of God is we think that his disposition towards us is not that one that he is inclined towards showing us compassion and grace. I think for a lot of us, we think that God's inclination towards us is that he's mad at us. And yeah, he'll show us compassion and grace, but reluctantly. But most of the time, he's just disappointed in you. And I just wanna tell you, that's not right. That's not true. The first characteristic that God says about himself is he says, I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord, and I'm gracious, and I'm compassionate. That's my default. 
You turn to me, and that's what you're gonna get every single time. You know, the biblical authors counted on this, and they relied on it so much that all the time they're pointing back and they're saying, remember what God is like, remember what God is like. They're encouraging people, turn from your sin, remember that you'll be met with compassion and grace. Did you know that the biblical authors counted on this so much that it, in, in certain times they even complained about it? One of my favorite quotations of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 in the whole Bible is in the book of Jonah. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the book of Jonah. If you're not, it's such a good book. We actually did a whole series on the book of Jonah years ago. Might be worth checking out. But basically, here's the abridged version. Uh, Jonah was this Jewish man. He was a Jewish prophet. God came to him, and he said, Jonah, I want you to go preach against the Ninevites. Now, if you guys, uh, without getting too deep into it, the Ninevites were actually the Israelites' greatest enemy. And uh, the Ninevites did uh, horrific Um, inhumane, I mean, terrible, atrocious things to the Jewish people. The only comparison that you can make to the terrible things that the the Ninevites did to the Jewish people would be the same kind of anti-Semitism that you saw in Nazi Germany. It was to that level. It was awful. And so God comes to Jonah and he said, "Um, Jonah, I want you to go preach against those people and I want you to tell them that that my wrath is against them. And so Jonah, you guys remember the story? What's Jonah do? runs away. He's like, I don't want to. So God goes and gets him via a giant fish. He brings him back. Jonah preaches to the Ninevites, and this was his message. He said to the Ninevites, you got three days, or God's going to destroy you. And so he preaches this message, and guess what happens? Well, the Ninevites, the king of Nineveh, this is Jonah chapter three, the king of Nineveh said, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows, look at this, God may yet relent and with compassion, with Rahum, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So he says, well, maybe if we cry out to God, he'll show compassion, all right? This is a king who doesn't know God. This is not a Jewish person. And look what happens. They cry out and the Bible says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. So he said, yeah, I'll sh- you cry out to me, I'll show compassion and I'll show grace. And so the whole city turned to God. And so Jonah preaches one sermon, the whole city turns to God. How do you think Jonah felt? <laughs> the Bible tells us. But Jonah was royally ticked off at this, which is pretty much what it says, right? He was exceedingly angry. Why was Jonah mad? You would think that'd be like the best ministry success of all time. The whole city turned to God. Look what he says. He prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, now notice, I knew that you were gracious, and a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. You see what he says? God, that's why I ran. I knew it. You're always so gracious all the time. <laughs> and I knew, I knew that if I went there and I told these people who I don't like, if I told them that, 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 if they tur- that, that who you are and that this is gonna happen, that if, you, if they turn to you, I knew, I knew that you were gonna show compassion and grace because that's what you're like. I didn't want that. And basically what Jonah said is, God, I want compassion and grace for me, but not for them, not for them. And this actually leads me to the second thing that I wanted to say, and that's this. I think the implication is that the people of God, for those of us who follow Christ, which by the way, I know not everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus. Some of you are still exploring Christianity. But for those of us who do, we are called by God to be imitators of his compassion and grace. Do you know that? 
we're called. Here's what Ephesians is gonna say. Ephesians says we should be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other, just like Christ forgave us in God, that, that, that just like God forgave us in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says. We're to imitate that. Now, let me just say here, here's the scandalous part of compassion and grace. Here's the scandalous part. I think all of us, maybe in this room, probably like the idea that God is compassionate and gracious to us. I think we all like that. But here's where it gets super scandalous. What happens if God wants to be compassionate and gracious to the person that you hate? What do you do then? What do you do when God wants to be compassionate and gracious to your ex? What do you do when God wants to be compassionate and gracious to the person who your ex cheated on you with? What do you do when God wants to be compassionate and gracious to that person who really, really, really hurts you or really hurts someone you love? What do you do when God wants to show compassion and grace to your abuser? See, it gets, it gets, it gets scandalous, it gets complicated. What do you do when you see your enemy, when you see that person who you so strongly dislike on social media? What do you do when you see in the media and in the news those people who you so vehemently disagree with? Listen, do we, for those of us who followers of Jesus, do we act like Jonah and say, grace and compassion for me, but not you? Or do we, like Jesus, look and say, Father, forgive them. Bless those who persecute. Love my enemy. See, it gets real complicated. Now, some of you might be hearing that and you might be thinking, how, how would I ever get the power and strength to do that? How would I ever, ever get the power and strength to, to love like that, to forgive like that, to, to desire that God would show grace even to my enemy? And listen, I think that leads me to the third thing, the last thing that I would say, and that's this, that Jesus Christ is the revelation of God's compassion and grace. Here's where you're gonna get the power. It's in Jesus, that's it. Because the Bible's gonna tell us that when Jesus came, he came as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what that means is that Jesus embodied the fullness of who God the Father was. And so God, Jesus, in God, filled out the fullness of his compassion and his grace. And so when people interacted with Jesus, he constantly emanated this compassion and this grace. His compassion was seen when he would heal people who were sick. His compassion and his grace was seen. Anyone who turned to him, no matter who they were, they were met with this compassion and grace of Christ. And of course, in the greatest act of compassion and grace, Jesus Christ went to the cross, taking sin upon himself and begging for the forgiveness of those who he was dying for, the very ones who were mocking him and who put him on the cross. God in Christ has done literally everything to destroy every barrier that would ever keep us from being in a relationship with him, making it, making it possible that all, all you have to do is turn to him. That's it. And grace is yours. That's all what Christ has done for us. And so let me just say that if you're a person who's here and maybe you're investigating Jesus and maybe you're still trying to figure out Christianity Listen, can I just tell you this? Maybe you believe somewhere in the recesses of your heart that you have gone too far, that you've done too much, and that you're in a place where, where God cannot be gracious and compassionate to you 
And maybe for you, you're under this assumption that maybe if you get your act together first, maybe if you start coming to church for a while, maybe if you stop drinking, maybe if you start doing some things, maybe, maybe then, maybe then, then you can actually start following God. And I just want to tell you, that's not right. That's not right. The moment you turn, no matter where you are, no matter how many times, no matter, you could turn to him right now and you will be met with compassion and grace. He'll meet you right where you are. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that doesn't mean that God is not going to allow us to feel the consequences of our decisions. God's grace and his compassion and his justice are not contradictory. We're gonna talk about that in weeks to come. But what it does mean is it means that God's disposition to you is that he wants to show compassion and he wants to show grace. And for those of us who follow Jesus, I think this is super important that we continue to gaze on his compassion and grace. You know, maybe if you're a person where you find that you, maybe for you, you find that you struggle with bitterness. Maybe for you, you're a person who is, maybe you you are stingy with forgiveness. Maybe you're a person who battles with with anger and unforgiveness. And um, if that's you, can I just maybe suggest to you, maybe I just suggest this, that maybe the answer to overcoming your unforgiveness and bitterness is not simply just to try harder. It's not just grit your teeth and try to be a more forgiving and compassionate person. I think that maybe, maybe it's possible that, that maybe you haven't fully embraced God's compassion and grace for you. Maybe you haven't allowed the, the true depth of how much he loves you and how much he's forgiven you to press deeply down into your soul because I believe when that happens, the result is that you're gonna become a more forgiving and gracious person. That's what God has called us to. And so guys, God is compassionate and he is gracious. And that means a lot for us. It means that we can count on that. We can cry out to him. It means that we are also called to this for those of us who follow Jesus. And it means that in Christ, the fullness of God's compassion and grace is found. Let's pray together. Lord, I do just wanna say thank you that you have revealed to us who you are and what you're like. You know, what we're talking about today, this, this, this attribute, this characteristic, this comes right from your word. And so it's, you know, we're not, we're not just um, inventing this stuff. And so God, I pray that as we come to you and as we seek to understand who you are, that you would transform us, help us to see you as you are, not as we desire you to be, or not even as we have fabricated you to be. Because God, we know that when we come to you as you really are and as you've revealed yourself, that's where transformation takes place. And God, you've revealed about yourself. You said that you are compassionate and you are gracious. And God, that is something we can rely on and that's something we can count on. And so maybe for some of us who are in this room right now, Lord, maybe we just need to cry out to you. Wherever we are, whatever we're facing, we just need to cry out to you. Or maybe for some of us, we've turned our face against you. Maybe we've gotten distracted. Maybe we've turned away. But I pray, God, that you would help us to fix our eyes and our heart and our attention and our affection on what you desire for us. Let that transform us. And so, God, as we worship and we sing in these next moments, I pray that you would meet us and that by your spirit that you would allow us just to talk to you and be honest with you and be real with you about where we are. Change us and transform us. We ask it in Jesus' name.